The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Is it on now? Yeah. Okay. I said to Martha, make the bio short. (laughs) It's always so uncomfortable to sit and listen to a bio. But I'm happy to be here. It's been a while since I've been here on Sunday morning. And it's nice to see everyone and to hear about all the activities going on here. It's just amazing, isn't it? There's just always more and more and more new things happening. So, what I want to talk about this morning is fear. Several weeks ago, in our group in San Jose, we read a story from Ajahn Brahm's book, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? You may have heard it, or I've heard of it, or seen it. it. has a collection of wonderful teaching stories. And this particular story that we read and discussed was about his trip to Singapore uh, several years ago during the SARS outbreak. And the trip had been planned, of course, long before the SARS epidemic. But when he got there, people were concerned about such a large gathering when there was the possibility of of picking up the SARS virus. So they were asking him, "Do do you think we should do this? Should we go ahead? And he said, he asked them, what is the population of Singapore? Four million. And how many people have SARS? 99. He said, that means three million nine hundred and one people don't have SARS. Let's do it. (laughs) So that sparked um, a very good discussion of fear. And it set me thinking about what is fear? Is it real? Is there such a thing as healthy fear? And how do we work with it? So Hafiz says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. It's true, we've all experienced fear, probably more than we'd like to acknowledge. And probably the experience for all of us is somewhat similar. It's a very body experience, isn't it? There's a sense of constriction, of tightness, even shutting down, closing off. It's unpleasant. FDR said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I think there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of truth in that. It's the fear itself that is so unpleasant. Not the object of our fear. But of course we don't realize that, do we? We think it's the object of our fear and not the fear 
itself. So as humans, we label this bodily experience, the adrenaline, the, the tightness, the sometimes short of breath, sometimes immobilization. As I say that, it reminds me of the saying, the deer in the headlights. And we assume that the deer is frightened, right? And that's why it stops. I learned just recently on a nature program that it doesn't have anything to do with fear. The deer's optic nerve is flooded by the light. And it takes a few seconds, minute, to accommodate, to acclimate to the light. And once the deer does, then he can see, and then he trots off. Kind of like when we go into a dark theater, right? And we stop until our eyes accommodate, until we get adjusted to the lack of light. And then we can see and go take a seat. But I found that very interesting, that it's not fear. We assume that animals have fear, right? I don't know if they do or not. One author says only mammals experience fear. I don't know how we know that or if that's true. But it's interesting to look at maybe what we often interpret as fear is not really fear. Maybe for ourselves, this is true. That we label a certain reaction as fear, and then we act out of that fear, don't we? And often, our reaction from fear is very unskillful, very unhealthy, very unhelpful. So I wonder if we could relabel our experience or if we could see it differently. Because if we view it as fear and then we react out of that fear, we're much more likely to create more problems than there were. As I was thinking about it, well, again, one author said that evil springs from our attachment, ill will, and fear. I was surprised to read that from fear. But if we think about it, all the wars, all the strife, all the struggle that goes on in our world, and there's enormous Enormous struggle, isn't there? All stems from fear. We fear each other. Religions fear each other. Countries fear each other. Nationalities fear each other. And it's out of that fear that we become violent, that we go to war, and we justify it again as the object of our fear being the reason that we have to stockpile nuclear weapons or we have to have, you know, free access to guns or whatever it is so that we can 
protect ourselves rather than examining the fear itself. Is there really anything to fear? I love this by Rilke. Unites of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you? Inconsolable sisters and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair. How we squander our hours of pain. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really seasons of us, our winter. If we believe our fear, then often we close down and we miss many opportunities. We turn away, we turn off, and we don't see or we don't learn what it might be possible to learn from the experience of fear. So I would like to propose that instead of fear, what we experience or what we can experience is alertness, awakeness, awareness. And that's skillful. That's intelligent, isn't it? So often the example of the hot stove is used. We say that it's healthy to have a healthy fear of a hot burner. But again, a healthy fear or a healthy awareness? I don't think I'm afraid of the stove, but I do have a healthy respect for it. And I am careful when the burner is on, but I wouldn't call that fear. I call that awareness, alertness, vigilance, either. Sort of like a cat or any animal that can be very relaxed, but very alert, so that if there's something happening in the environment, a danger or whatever, the animal is ready to respond. When we close off, when we um, when we constrict ourselves and try to protect, then we're not open. We're not available to respond, or we're less so. We're very limited. But if we can open in the face of fear or danger, if we can be alert, then we're ready to respond. And we have the response available to us. At the beginning of Gill's chapter on fear in The Issue at Hand, he quotes the Dhammapada. For one who is awake, non-perplexed, whose mind is uncontaminated 
and who has abandoned both good deeds and bad, fear does not exist. So when we're completely open, unconfused, uncontaminated, there's no need for fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. We often think of it that way, don't we? We think there's fear and the opposite is courage. But courage is not necessarily a lack of fear. Courage, rather, is the ability to face the fear, to experience the fear, even to embrace it. Um, In Zen, they talk about dancing with the fear. And in that, in that embracing, in that openness to fear, courage is born. Pema Chodron, in her book, When Things Fall Apart, talks about this, doesn't she? She suggests that rather than Closing off, constricting, turning off, we open. We open to what is happening, to what is falling apart, and surrender. Let it happen. Let the fear, whatever, be there. When we turn toward the fear rather than away from it, The common term these days is lean in. When we lean into the fear rather than backing away from it, the possibility of the fear not running us is there. The possibility of courage. The courageous heart is one that openly accepts and works with all of life's circumstances. Every situation, whether it brings us happiness or sadness, is a potential gift because it brings us energy that we can use to transform our conditioned mind. It is this transformation that brings true freedom. When we're caught in the trance of fear, we're not free, are we? We're bound by it. But when we can open to the fear, then we're not caught. We're not bound by it. Ajahn Brahm says, fear is finding fault with the future. Fear is about the future. Fear is not about right now. Right now, in this present moment, everything is fine. In the present moment, there isn't fear. If there's something going on, then we're responding. We're doing whatever we need to do. There's not fear. So that's valuable to remember that fear is about the future. We, we have all these ideas or thoughts or concerns about What's going to happen in the future? Could be the next minute, could be the next day, or could be down the road. 
But it's not what's happening right now. It's what we think might happen. And how often do we think the worst? In fact, sometimes we think that that's protection. <laughs> I know I have. It's a, it's a superstition. If I think the worst, then I'll be prepared. It won't catch me by surprise. But it's not true, is it? Thinking the worst can sometimes create the worst. Because, of course, we act out of our thinking. On the other hand, being open and aware and alert, then we are available to respond to whatever happens. The worst, if we think it is. It may not be. But we're available then. If we're closed off and thinking the worst, preparing for the worst, then we're not available. Thich Nhat Hanh says the way to take care of the future is to take care of the present moment. I think that's so true. If we're taking care of things right now, then life unfolds and we're present for it. We're available for it. Fear becomes a trance through which we view life. You know, it's like we say, when a person is hungry, all they can think about is food. If you're a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And if we're seeing the world through fear, then everything is a threat, whether it really is or not. We interpret things We see things through our beliefs, our ideas, the stories that we tell ourselves, the interpretations, or rather misinterpretations of other people, of ourselves, of what's happening, of life. But we don't recognize that their stories, their ideas, their interpretations We believe them and think they're so real, they're so solid. And then often we hang on very tenaciously to these beliefs and ideas. But they're not true. Not necessarily true. In the case of fear, they're not true. And then we react out of them. Often, as I said, unskillfully. Some of you may be familiar with um, the personality inventory called the Enneagram. It's a spiritually based profile, we might say, of human personality. And there are nine points. They're given numbers rather than names, so there's no judgment. There's no suggestion that one is better or worse than any other. But out of the nine, three of them are fear-based. Isn't that amazing? Three of them. Now, this is supposed to be a description of, of all of us, that we all fall into one of the nine categories. And if three of them are fear-based, that suggests that a third of our population is fear-based. That's a huge number, isn't it? And if a third of us are acting out of fear, 
That's kind of scary. <laughs> Fear leads us to armor, to protect ourselves, often building a wall, closing our hearts, sometimes to ourselves, often to others. And we think, again, that we're protecting ourselves, that we're helping. And in fact, it's just the opposite. Chogyam Trungpa says, we're a bundle of tense muscles defending our existence. A bunch of tense muscles defending our existence. Very often, that's what it is, isn't it? We think we're defending our very existence. I've heard it said that the greatest fear is that of public speaking, but I suspect the greatest fear is that of non-existence. Our greatest fear of human beings is not to exist. We have a huge fear of death in this culture, but maybe even more, or maybe the reason for the fear of death is that we're afraid we won't continue. We're afraid of not existing. Fear isolates us. We, because we tend to withdraw, we tend to pull back, we tend to be alone, to not be with other people, And, of course, this intensifies the fear, doesn't it? It always intensifies any problem when we isolate, when we pull back from people. So one of the ways of working with that kind of isolation and pulling back is developing community, developing a sense of community. Sangha, in terms of our Buddhist practice, intentionally, purposely reaching out to other people, even to one other person, because anything that can be spoken to another human being loses its power. It can't be all that bad if it can be said to someone else. So reaching out to others and allowing the support allowing the comfort of community, of other beings. We remember the story that the Buddha first taught loving-kindness to his monks who were afraid of the tree spirits. When he sent them out into the forest and they didn't want to go, and they told him, we don't want to go out there, the tree spirits are terrible, they taunt us, And they scare us, and please don't send us out there. And he said, I will teach you. I will teach you how to be with the spirits, and then they won't bother you. And of course he did. He taught them loving kindness. They went out into the forest and practiced loving kindness, and the tree spirits left them alone, never bothered them after that. So we can take refuge when we're afraid, when we're feeling fear. We can take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. 
Tara Brock renames the three refuges as presence or awareness for the Buddha, truth for the Dharma, and love or compassion for the Sangha. Some of you may be familiar with her book, True Refuge. Very excellent. And she talks about these three refuges. Really, we're taking refuge in our own ability to be awake, in our own ability to awaken, and then to respond from that awakeness. When we open completely to the fear that we are, I might say, imagining, because fear is in the mind, fear is not real in the sense that we think of things as real. Fear is an idea in the mind. When we open fully to that and see fear for what it is, See fear as fear, not as something real. Of course, we experience it, but when we see that it's not really real, it tends to dissipate. It tends to lose its power over us. Like Mara, the night of the Buddha's awakening, when he tried to tempt the Buddha, and when he taunted him and suggested who did he think he was to awaken. The Buddha didn't chase him away or throw him out. He said simply, Mara, I see you. When we see the fear that we're experiencing and see it clearly, it loses its power over us. It's what we don't see, what we don't acknowledge, that runs us. When we open completely to whatever is there, then it doesn't have the same hold on us. It doesn't have the same power over us. We can learn to trust by giving space for our fear, just Allowing it to be. Not getting caught up in it. Not fighting with it. The experience of fear is a part of life. If we resist fear, we resist life. But just give it the space that it needs. We can learn to trust. We can learn to trust ourselves. We can learn to trust life and the unfolding of life. We can learn to let go or let be and not try to control everything so much. We open to life just as it is. Sounds simple, but that's huge, isn't it? It's huge to open ourselves to life just as it is, not trying to change it, not trying to control it, not trying to make it different, wish it different, but life just as it is.
when we learn to trust ourselves through our practice, through meditation, and we become open to each moment, to just what's happening through our awareness and our presence, we may find that we have the courage to act in situations that we might not have or in situations that other people may think it foolish to act. We may have courage to face things that other people don't necessarily even see the value in facing. Fear is all about us. (laughs) It's all about me and protecting me, my existence or my possessions or my reputation or whatever it is. It's about me. It's very self-centered, actually. The Tao Te Ching says, What does it mean that hope is as hollow as fear? Hope and fear are both phantoms that arise from thinking of the self. When we don't see the self as self, what do we have to fear? So if we're not so concerned with this separate self, what do we have to fear? So one way of getting out of ourselves can be helping others in very extreme or fearful circumstances, we can help someone else. could be quite dramatic, like rescuing someone from a fire or um, pulling someone from the water who's drowning. Or it could be much less dramatic, like speaking up for someone else when they can't. Speaking up in situations that we might not have otherwise, but purposefully, purposefully putting our uncomfortableness aside and speaking up for someone else. Could be another person, a group of people, um, whatever. But that gets us out of ourselves and doing for someone else, letting go of the fear. And lastly, I will just suggest that fear might at times be a gift. At least we could view it that way. We could ask ourselves, what is the gift or what is the lesson? What can I take from this experience? Can we, can we transform this energy 
from a limiting trance to openness, awareness, to whatever life brings to us and respond or relate to what life gives us with skillfulness, with openness, rather than closing off or shrinking away or denying or avoiding. Makes me think of Rumi's poem, The Guest House, where he suggests that this life is a guest house. Every day, a new visitor. It's much longer than I can quote, but can we welcome them? Understanding that each is a gift from beyond. Can we welcome whatever life presents to us as a way of increasing our openness, our presence, our awareness, our ability to respond skillfully and not closing off or turning away. So we have just a few minutes. Um, Are there comments? Discussion? Yes, can we have a microphone back in the back? Okay, thank you. Um, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. I guess. Well, um, you can't. Okay. I was just thinking. Um, I almost didn't come, but I'm so glad I did. I've really uh, so much got so much out of your talk. I thought about this topic for years now, and you brought a lot of clarity to me. And I was thinking how um, uh, the, I've been trying, I've been kind of separating myself a little bit from popular culture a lot, because the more I was absorbed with it, especially the news, um, the more I, I, I was in a fear-based mode. And it seemed to me like... Um, popular culture was encouraging it and I had to almost turn counterculture mm-hmm. to to be free again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I um, that was a revelation I started to have about a year ago when I stopped listening to so much news and and started to really pay attention to what I was paying attention to movies mm-hmm. I was watching and that and anyway I wanted to mention that thank mm-hmm. you thank you thank you Yes, it reminds me of two things. One, um, you know, we often hear that this practice can be like swimming upstream. And I think for the very reason you suggest, that so often what goes on in the culture around us is the opposite of what we're trying to practice um, as we do this practice and as we meditate. And so it can be, it can be very difficult to remember our practice and develop the qualities we want to develop when everything around us seems to be pointing to the opposite. 
And it's good just to remember that, that it can be very challenging to, to live this practice in a culture that doesn't necessarily support it. The other thing it made me think of, when we were having the discussion in San Jose, someone spoke up and said that from a public health perspective, Ajahn Brahm may have been very foolish. <laughs> and I thought about that. You know, it's a, it's a valid point, I think. Um, but then as I thought about it, I thought many of our public policies, partly public health, but many other public policies, are based on fear. They're not based on openness um, or even seeing the whole situation realistically, they can be based on a very limited view of something, or they are often based on fear. And whatever you think of Ajahn Brahm's decision, I think his point was, was so helpful that we often see things from the 99 <laughs> that have SARS rather than the 3,901,000 that don't. And so just keeping that perspective in mind, not being caught in the fear because a limited number of people have something or whatever, um, if we, if we did that and made our decisions from that perspective rather than just the narrow, limited perspective, it could be so much more helpful. And I'm not suggesting that um, you know, public policies or public health policies to try to keep down the spread of infection are not wise. Of course, very often they are but perhaps they could be made based on, uh, or not based on fear, based on openness. And, you know, maybe they would be made a little bit differently. Somebody else? Yeah. So... Um my mother passed away on Mother's Day, and it was, uh, I, I felt in some way that taking the hospice training and the Zen hospice training was very helpful. But then what happened was I was worried, and she was 87, she lived the full life, uh, I was worried about my father passing, the last, that very last connection. He's 96, he'll be 97 in January. And while everybody in the family has been worried about that, uh, I was, what you suggested, taking the attention off the self about that fear. Mm -hmm. And I started resuming doing an oral history of his life. And what blew me away was that um, in all of those years, he had so many accomplishments that were, in his humble way, uh, taken for granted. And when I saw it in its fullness, I um, decided to send it 
uh, his bio to the state senator of New Jersey. <laughs> and what flowered from that was uh, they issued him a proclamation, uh, and it was in the newspapers. And then it went to the county level. I was just back there for two weeks uh, in New Jersey spending time with him. And I just have put aside these last several months trying to keep him healthy and happy. We hired a caregiver to look out for him. He recently visited with the new mayor, was the first woman mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, where I grew up. She spent an hour with him. And the same thing on the county level. And it was this, it, it just continues uh, mm -hmm. to the degree that I set aside a portion of, of my life, my busyness, to make sure that he's comfortable and happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to share that. And what I hear is that you transformed the fear, the fear of your dad dying, yes. to yes. acknowledging his life and helping others to acknowledge. Yeah, thanks. Well, I see it's 1045, so we need to stop. Thank you all for your attention. And if you have further comments or questions, I'll be around for a little while. <laughs>